Not only is she looking to make Baltimore a hub of technical innovation, but she wants it to be a community that breaks barriers around equality and mobilizing the community in a way that has generational impact on families and economies for years to come. Jamie literally began her career as the tech boom started and worked with some of today's biggest and best tech companies around funding, investment, and capital raising when they first started off. But after over two decades of work as a managing director for some of the biggest investment firms in the world, she was driven for more purpose and wanted to turn her home city of Baltimore into not just the next Silicon Valley, but an improved version of that reality. In today's episode, we discuss everything from how she became addicted to the finance world the first time she stepped onto the trading floor, the work she does to shine light on underrepresented communities to get more capital, and what she thinks the future holds with artificial intelligence and the responsibility that comes with it. Her passion and energy in our discussion had me buzzing for hours afterwards, and I could have talked to her forever. I so admire everything she's doing with her company and community, and her vision of what the tech ecosystem in her community can be is nothing short of inspiring. Very excited for you to hear about her journey in today's episode, and believe you will walk away as impressed as I was. Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. I am your host, Oz Rashid. Today, we have a really special guest good friend and longtime listener of the Higher Learning Podcast, Jamie McDonald. Jamie is the CEO at Upsurge Baltimore, uh, Upsurge Tech Ecosystem Engine of the Baltimore uh, community, specializing in Equitech. I am so excited to have you here. How are you doing today, Jamie? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. I am so interested ever since I heard about Upsurge, ever since I heard about what you're doing in that community and specifically around Equitech, it was something really exciting for me. And so I've been dying to have you on the show and I'm so glad that you came on, but I want to start here because your background is not all entrepreneurship. In fact, <laughs> the majority of your career has been spent in investment banking. So I'm just super interested, very different worlds. Um, interested to hear how you got from investment banking into the entrepreneurial world at Upsurge. So, um, so thanks again. Great to be with you. And um, it is an interesting place to start because I think that my, so I started in investment banking right out of grad school. Um, and I worked for a global specialty investment bank called Alex Brown. And Alex Brown was the investment bank of tech companies in the, you know, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. And so you probably don't know Alex Brown by name, but we were the bankers that brought public Microsoft, Google, Starbucks, all these early high growth companies, because back then they were not the household names they are today. Sure. And the big, you know, bulge bracket investment banks didn't touch little companies like that back then. So, um, you know, so, so I, I entered this very entrepreneurial environment, but it felt comfortable for me because my life, basically starting from when I was nine until I, you know, joined Alex Brown was really built and kind of propelled by my own entrepreneurial endeavors. And, um, and then after I left my investment banking life, so I was there for 17 years, um, I went back into more formalized entrepreneurship and you know started and sold a couple of companies. And now obviously I lead an entrepreneurial ecosystem builder for Baltimore. Um, but that thread of connectivity, entrepreneurship has definitely been a thread of connectivity through my entire professional career. And even actually when I was at Alex Brown, um, I spent the bulk of my 17 years there as the co-head of private equity coverage. So I was covering 
VCs and back in the day, we used to call them leverage buyout funds um, that were investing in entrepreneurial companies. So again, I was still sort of, I, I was playing in that space just from a different perspective. And all of that has really come together to inform the work that I'm doing today in this latest, you know, iteration. Incarnation. Of I love that. I have so much I want to tap into there. I'm going to start here. So I had not heard of Alex Brown. That is really fascinating. Um, I'm interested. So the VCs right now, they're prevalent. They're everywhere. Uh, mm -hmm. Andreessen Horowitz, Kleiner Perkins, there's tons out there, right? Is it fair to say that Alex Brown was one of the first VCs or one of the first like looking and investing in the technology space? Or is that a mischaracterization? So so we worked with a lot of those early VCs and the, just like any, any sector that becomes more mature, what it was, you know, back in the late 80s, 90s and into the early 2000s even um, has a lot of echoes of today, but it looks very different. I mean, you know, we were in an arena where it was basically, you know, angels and then venture capital and then what today we call private equity, but private equity has a, a bit of a different tilt from what the old leverage buyout funds were. So essentially angels were wealthy people who put money into companies. Venture capitalists raised money from often lots of wealthy people and institutions and put money into companies at a slightly later stage. And then, and it was all equity. And then the LBO funds back then were largely putting debt into companies um, and getting equity, essentially equity, they would lever the companies, take equity, refinance the companies as they grow, and then that's how they would all make money. So it was a simpler, um, it, it was a simpler kind of overall ecosystem architecture. Now all of those things have subdivided and there's so many stages of investment at each place. And so, you know, so again, it's like any maturing industry where you see finer degrees of separation and more layers of, um, of sort of sophistication of the way that things happen. And that's both good and bad. I think if you're an aspiring entrepreneur trying to build a company, because, you know, it used to be that there were kind of like, I'm exaggerating, but you know, 10 or 15 VCs that were out there, your angels were almost always in your own backyard. Now angels can be anywhere in the country. And then if you reached a certain size, you would typically go public or you would get sold and it was pretty straightforward. Now the permutations of that are much more wide ranging. Wow, that is incredible. And, and I just find it so interesting. When you were working there back in the, the 80s, early 90s, did you envision the industry evolving to what it is now? Was that always kind of thought like that was the next steps or was this completely caught everybody no. off guard who was working there at the time? No, I mean, obviously there are these amazing, brilliant like futurists that can kind of see around corners. You know, I think I have always been much more, um, I can see two or three steps ahead, not five or six steps ahead. Okay. <laughs> and I think I'm a reasonably good strategist, but you know, I think that what we saw back then was in some ways a lot the way that I think people are looking at um, what's happening with generative AI right now. I think everyone knows the world has changed. Something has shifted in the last seven or eight months and not that people haven't been working on AI for a long time in the same way that people have, people have been working on the internet for 40 years before 
it came into kind of common usage. So we saw, you know, with the advent of, you know, some of those early technologies, particularly in the 90s, we certainly knew that we were in a moment when things were fundamentally changing, but where those changes would take us, we didn't know. And I think that's very much what I'm feeling. I felt it again when the internet really became, you know, a sort of an every person's vehicle. And I'm feeling that way right now with generative AI and where like, we can, I think even the smartest people out there can't imagine where this is gonna take us. And so, so it's, um, I think it's both exciting and worrisome in a way because we have so many possibilities for how, you know, this can change the future, solve big problems. I, for example, I have a husband with chronic, a chronic disease and, um, and one of his doctors has, he's got Parkinson's and one of his doctors has said that quantum computing and AI will solve things like Parkinson's faster in what is likely to be just a couple of years than the 75 or hundred years of research that have preceded it. So like there's things like that, that you see and you say, that's amazing. But then you look at some of the other things that may accompany, you know, this unfathomable technology. And you kind of say like, what is this gonna mean for inequities in our country? What's it gonna mean for jobs and job creation, for just the culture and existence of corporations, for truth? Like, what's it all gonna mean? It's it's really hard to tell. Yeah, I mean, people who know me and people who listen to this podcast will, will, will affirm this. I am a technology optimist. I am a humanist. I believe in the general good of man and women to, to do right. And when we have technology and new technology innovations that come out, there are certainly upsides and downsides. I think for the very, for the most part, we, we tend to lean on the upsides. I don't think that AI is going to, you know, completely wipe out and replace every job. I think that the way I look at AI, I like to call it augmented intelligence. And I heard that, but I really loved it because what I think it does is it augments our productivity and takes it to the next level. Like you don't necessarily want uh, artificial intelligence to be representing you in court, but you certainly want your lawyers to have access to large language models and, and machine learning to be able to understand case uh, work, to be able to best defend you, right? Same thing with doctors, right? Mm -hmm. The ability to um, cure or, or, or severely limit things like Parkinson's, like cancer, um, that world is going to be open in a way that that hasn't before because of our ability to look back through um, you know, machine learning and different things that have been out there. So I think that the application is, is, is really important. I also think like when I look at other technologies that have popped off over the last three, four years, whether it be web three or the metaverse or crypto or even blockchain, I think a lot of those suffered from a lack of democratization, a lack of consumer application, um, that was able to be put in the hands of anybody to work with, to play with, to make more productivity. And that's where chat GPT, you know, AI has been around for a while, but the fact that we yeah. could get it in the hands of the average everyday worker um, to be able to, to leverage and, and, and make their work more productive. I think that's a big difference in why um, the growth we've seen has been so substantial. Now, I know that people say hype cycle and things have gone down over the last couple months and that, that naysayers will say that's why this isn't, you know, the same as the internet. And I just disagree with that. I just think that fundamentally we're figuring out how to, to work with AI and what I call augmented intelligence, we'll continue to learn how to apply it. 
but the best is yet to come. And I really believe that there's going to be so many great things that come from it. And of course, there will be bad actors and bad things that come from it. That happens with any innovation or any type of technology. But I believe in general, we'll, be, we'll hopefully be able to mitigate that. So totally agree with you. I do think what you said, though, about inequities and further um, widening inequities, that is something that concerns me as well. And I think that's something that people who are building it have to be able to responsibly deploy it and build it in an ethical manner um, and figure out a way that it closes those gaps and not exacerbates them. So, yeah. gosh, I think uh, so. I could talk about this for days. But I really love your take there. And I, I'll, I'll, um, I'll tie into something that you said. I too tend to be an optimist, but because I, I don't know what's what's the um, the Martin Luther King, you know, the arc of history bends toward justice as an example. I think though that we're that you know you can have two different ways to get from here to here. And one way is this, and one way is this, but one way looks like this, mm -hmm. right? And so I think that the, um, I think that the optimistic viewpoint is the way I see it is it's out into the future. I think the between here and there part, I think upheaval and pain are a part of big transitions like these. Um, and, you know, again, I've lived through a few of these, like the dot-com bubble, you know, when you were a kid, when I was, <laughs> when I was at Alex Brown, I mean, you know, it, it essentially wiped out a generation of companies, right. That probably shouldn't have been, um, hyped the way they were, but that didn't, that didn't mean that the internet was not a transformational technology, despite the fact that we went through a really tough like five years in the midst of that. So I think that I think your your view that we hope that the leading actors will approach this with you know with with responsibility and um, with a broader lens on humanity is also optimistic. <laughs> sure. No, I'm I, with you. I hope, I mean, I hope so. Um, and, but I think between here and there, some of the pain and dislocation is going to be real. And I think that part of what we as leaders in our respective work should be thinking about is like, what's the role we play in thinking about how we're ready to be part of addressing some of what's likely to be a difficult period. Yeah. I, I think you're spot on. And, and, and this, is, uh, this is the last thing I'll say about it. You're right. Like and you said it a minute ago, I see things two to three steps ahead. And I'm not saying in any type of way, I see things five to six, but I'm looking at things more long-term. And, and I think if we look at it finite, you're right. There will be change. There will be disruption. There will be companies and people impacted. But I think the best people, right? The right companies, the best companies, whatever their next models, they're going to adapt. They're going to change. They're going to have to, just like with the internet, yeah. right? The internet did the yeah. same thing. There was a, a an initial five to 10 years where people were getting a hold of what its capability was. It impacted businesses. It changed the way we worked. And then we figured it out and people adapted, right? And so, um, and companies adapted and things adapted. So I, I totally agree with you. You're right. We'll probably have some pain and there'll be some issues, but over time, I think those same people that are maybe going to feel some of those downside effects will be able to feel some of those upside effects, especially if they accept things and adapt and evolve, which I think the best people always do. So 
I think we're saying the same thing, but I totally yeah, agree with you. I I'm agree. thinking of that a little bit more of that long view, but I think people do need to understand what's coming and the impact of it and be able to be out in front of that curve rather than reacting to it. And I think that's going to be really, really important. Um, all right, I want to take this into a little bit of a lighter note. So you said that, I think you told me earlier that you grew up in South Philly, that you had the entrepreneurial bug as early as nine years old. What was your first business? <laughs> So a, to call it a business is probably a bit of an overstatement, but basically it was a money-making endeavor okay. um, is the way I would think about it because, which I guess a business is, but I am um, in the, uh, in the vein of uh, the motivators of many people, many places, I needed some money. And so I was from a family that there wasn't a lot of extra and um and I, I was, I've always been an athlete. I'm still today, I play a lot of sports and I grew up, um, my mother was at the time, the receptionist at the Y, at a Y in Philly. And um, in the old days, big like YMCAs, YMHAs, they used to have like, every single thing would happen in one big giant room. Like, so like the basketball nets, they would come down, they'd go back up. If the gymnastics, they would have every, every piece of equipment out in the middle of this big gym. And um, sorry, I got a little blip on my screen there. And, um, and so I, I did gymnastics every day after school and there were all kinds of classes and after school programs at this Y. And so you'd have chairs like what I'm sitting in here. I'm in a little row of chairs you can see and you'd have like moms lined up in this big gym because this, this, this would be the early seventies. You'd have moms lined, lined up in this big gym and their, their, let's say, 10 or 11-year-old was doing gymnastics and their four, five, six, seven-year-olds were in this wide open gym where they're going to get hit with a basketball or run over by a runner or whatever. So they're trying to hold on to their kids. And, and I wanted this pair of rainbow jeans that the cool girl in my school had. Mm -hmm. And my, we couldn't afford them. It was a luxury. And so like, I just had this idea, I, you know, I had this little kid like run across my feet in the gym one day with his mother chasing after him. And I went to my mother and I said, like, can I make a flyer? And, um, and so I started this thing called the tiny tots tumbling class. And I, had, there was a room off of the gym and I was an insider. So I knew this secret room and it was all padded, like for boxing or Taekwondo or something. And so I would take kids into this room and I would put down a few mats and we would do cartwheels and tumble around. And, and I was charging these moms $1 per hour per kid. And so just a dollar, but I was up to by a few weeks into this, I was up to two to three hours a day with eight to 10 kids per hour. Whoa. And so this is the seventies and I'm making like 25 or $30 a day. You know, I think the rainbow jeans probably cost $11.99 or something like that. Like I had them in no time. Then I got fry boots. I was like, I was like Got on it. my way. And so it was my first, it was my first opportunity to really see that I had skills, people had needs. And if I could match those two things up, I could make money and we would both be happy. Right. So the fundamentals of all entrepreneurship in that little kernel of a business. And then from there, I did a million other things, always entrepreneurial. I kept coaching gymnastics and doing this sort of thing, but I also, 
I love to cook. I made cheese for a while and sold that. Like I, I always kind of had something entrepreneurial going you on. You made and- cheese? What? Yeah. Oh my God. I was so a listen, cheese maker. <laughs> I have to say like your first business was way more advanced than mine. I don't think I've ever shared this, but I'm going to go ahead and do it now. So do here's it. what I did. I was 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. And my family had a membership to what was called the Price Club back in the day, which is now known to everybody as Costco. Yep. And so I remember I got allowance. And so I went and bought, at the time, what were very popular were these lollipops called blow pops that all the kids loved. Okay. (laughs) Um, And so I bought those and I put those in my backpack and I would go and I would sell them for a quarter in between classes or recess or whatever it may be. And then I graduated to gum. And then candy bars eventually. <laughs> and I ended up getting in trouble because some kid was not allowed to be chewing gum in class and they were chewing it and they were, they stuck it to the floor and it made a big mess. And they're like, where did you get this gum? And they blamed me. And I, of course, got taken <laughs> to detention. So that was my first detention and my first entrepreneurial uh, uh, endeavor that I ran into. But I made really good money doing that. I was able to go and buy different things. And I think yeah. I eventually sold pogs. So it's funny because I remember somebody brought up you know, they were looking, they were talking about interview questions, right? And we're going to get to that in a little bit, but they were talking about, I always want to hire somebody entrepreneurial. And I find one of the biggest correlations of success is, did you have a job before 11, 12 years old? And what were you doing? And so many of the famous CEOs and entrepreneurs, yeah. um, like I think Warren Buffett and um, Bill Gates, like had a paper route, like that. Yep. that's like a very common thing that you hear, because that's one of the first entrepreneurial endeavors you can take on when you get up at five o'clock in the morning and you're tossing your newspaper at the door, which is what they used to do, zillennials and millennials back in the day, Mm -hmm. um, when they were actually getting physical newspapers, there was a paper boy. So I love that. I love the entrepreneurial spirit you showed. And now it's carried you throughout your curse. I want to talk about Upsurge because when I first found out about Upsurge and I found out about what you do in the Baltimore community, I want to talk about Baltimore and why Baltimore, but let's start here. What is the vision? What is the mission of Upsurge? What drew you to come lead this organization? Yeah. Um, well, I will tell you, I would have paid you extra for the watermelon blow pop because that was oh, always yeah. my favorite. Those were the ones that went like this by second period. Those were all gone. So yeah, like second, second choice, green apple, but always love the watermelon. Green apple. Love it. Um, so, so, you know, in some ways, I think that when you get to my age, if you're still working your butt off the way I do, the way you will be, um, you know, what you're constantly looking for is the way that like the, um, you know, the way sedimentary rock has layers and layers and layers. Um, And some layers are really calcified. And then there's like those soft layers at the top where things are still growing. And like, I think about it a lot that way that like the different layers of experience that I had through my life um, in a lot of ways led me to this role. So I've been, um, I've been in Baltimore now for 30 plus years and, um, and beyond just my core professional life, I have also, I think probably because of my upbringing, because of some other stories we could spend time on in a different podcast, but I've, I have a deep affinity for the parts of a city that are um, working class, under-resourced, diverse, um, that that was my life growing up, and um, and so I got involved pre- pretty early on with a range of community initiatives, pretty much all focused on work and entrepreneurship. So I had my like my day job that paid me my salary, and then I had my civic life where I was involved in all kinds of organizations as a board member, as a 
you know, as a program developer, all kinds of, you know, I raised a lot of money, like did, I did a range of different things for these organizations that were supporting work and entrepreneurship. Um, and when I, um, I became part of a working group in 2019, just ahead of COVID, um, that was sort of looking at this incredibly rich, asset-rich city that Baltimore is, um, and and sort of what the what the gaps were in terms of why we hadn't progressed as quickly from our sort of industrial heyday to essentially a thriving 21st century economy. And, you know, and what um, this group involved a couple of our biggest companies, uh, a, a key leader at Johns Hopkins, some folks from University of Maryland, just some kind of thought leaders in town and me and some others. And so we were meeting sort of saying like, what is gonna turbocharge the Baltimore economy? And, um, and what we, you know, mobilized around is not rocket science at all, which is that, you know, there's no growing city in America in 20, you know, in the 21st century that doesn't have a thriving tech economy. Now, tech economies can look different in different places. And when we say tech, we're really talking about tech broadly. So tech, you know, equals innovation, not necessarily tech like software. Um, so tech includes, you know, life sciences, healthcare, so broadly thinking about an innovation economy. And so, um, so that was, a, that was not a revelation, but it was a, it was a galvanizing construct that basically said, okay, if this is the missing piece and we have this deep university infrastructure, you know, we have 16 universities in Baltimore and the immediate surrounding area. Um, we have a rich base of big companies. We had a medium base of emerging companies. Um, we have reasonable capital infrastructure. That's one of the gaps. Um, and we sit in the densest, the second densest innovation region in the country. If you think about Boston to Virginia, um, relative to let's say Seattle to LA, like those two corridors are the two densest innovation corridors in the country. And we are the last affordable city in that corridor. So we sort of looked at all these things and said, like, if you, if you look at our assets relative to our current stature in the innovation, you know, ecosystems around the country, we are probably the city in the country that has the biggest gap between our inherent assets and our opportunity. And so we started talking about what it would take to build the infrastructure to really turbocharge the tech economy here. And obviously I have a perspective on, of that, on that from a couple of different vantage points from my work with venture capital and private equity firms when I was an investment banker, from my work as an entrepreneur in Baltimore, growing a company, two companies and selling them. Um, and then from just my personal entrepreneurial passion as a, as a pathway for economic opportunity. And so there came a point in time when the group said, okay, we're in if you'll consider taking it on. And so, you know, I, I had to do some thinking about that because at the time I was 50, whatever. And I was like, ugh, starting a new thing is a big commitment. Um, 
and particularly something big like this and the founding leader of an organization like this matters there the continuity matters a lot so i had to do some real thinking about it and i basically went back to my colleagues who we'd been working on this working group with and said look i'd be excited about taking it on but i don't want to just sort of plan a flag and say we're trying to be the next austin or boston right or you know those are cities more like what we thought we could be I just said, like, if that's all we're trying to do, that's honestly not groundbreaking enough for me. And so, you know, if we think about Seattle, San Francisco, Boston as like version 1.0 tech cities, and then we think about, you know, New York, LA, Austin as version 2.0 tech cities, what I sort of said to the group is, why don't we aspire to be the first true 3.0 tech city, like a tech city that says, we can build a tech city with like learning the lessons of what these other cities have done well, but avoiding the, the sort of the, the, the outcome that they've experienced in every one of those cities where those are the six most wealth divided cities in the country now. And so could we tackle it in a different way where from the beginning we said, we want to think about how we build a platform that embraces diversity as a force multiplier for a company led by a founder of any background that we pay special attention and think about the sort of dedicated resources to historically underestimated founders that we think about where technology itself can play a role in driving and you know down inequities and that we think about pathways into tech for the baltimoreans who want them and those four lanes of work became the vision for what we would ultimately codify into a framework that we call Equitech. And so really Equitech at its core is the belief that you don't have to choose between being a top tier global tech city and an equitable one. And so, so they agreed and, you know, two and three quarter years later, here I am. Okay. Wow. So I, I don't, I, I'm inspired listening to that. I didn't even know that level of detail. I think what you're doing is incredible. It's groundbreaking. It's innovative. It's admirable. It's, it's everything. Um, I'm so excited to hear about it. I'm so excited to get involved with it. I want to ask you a couple of tactical questions. Yeah. How many startups do you currently have in your ecosystem? So as of June of this year, we have um, 422 startups that we're tracking. Wow. And yeah, it's a pretty deep ecosystem I and mean, that surprises people. Um, that makes us bigger than Pittsburgh, Detroit, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Columbus, lots of cities that we're often compared against. Um, we, you know, I think that we lack a megaphone to tell our story well, and Baltimore, unfortunately, in the media has a layer of coverage that's very, one dimensional. And so stories about our amazing emerging tech ecosystem often don't break through. We're working on that. Um, but yeah, so 422 companies that we're tracking as of June. Okay. A couple other tactical questions. What do you provide these companies? So, um, so we, we provide a set of direct in, like startup advancement services, um, entrepreneurs and residents, masterclasses, coaching, a couple of accelerators with Techstars as a partner, a range of other programming like that. But the other critical thing that we do is we mobilize our ecosystem around supporting those startups. So it's not just what Upsurge can provide directly because 
that would make us a big giant, you know, organization. That's not our aspiration. What we are doing is we have, um, for example, a group of our, you know, 50 largest corporate CEOs in town, um, or the CEOs of our 50 largest companies. And we meet with them twice a year and we work with them on the ways that they can play a role empowering the startup economy. And we do a lot of work on why it's a win-win. It's good for the startups, it's good for them. And we try to think about how we mobilize not just the um, economic capital infrastructure of our ecosystem, but also the network capital, the social capital of our ecosystem, all the other things that can play a role in our startups advancing. So really like, I get this question, so what does that mean? So, so think about, a we've got a, a series C stage company in town. They've got about, I don't know, 80, 90 million in revenue, um, about 130 employees, you know, mostly in Baltimore, but some around the country. And for a company like that, you know, they don't need a ton from us, but the one thing we can deliver for them is access to customers. And so you can imagine if you're the CEO of that company and you you send us a note and you say, look, I'm going to spend four days in, in Houston because I've got, I'm going to a conference and I've been dying to get in to see the chief innovation officer at Baylor Medical System. And here's her contact information. Can you help me find somebody who knows this person? So we have like a wish list structure where we can go out to our Uber connectors in Baltimore and we can say, you know, this CEO is going to be in Houston. They're one of our top companies. Here's a little about them. Here's a forwardable email that you could send if you're willing to make this connection. Does anybody have a connection to this, to a senior person at Baylor Medical System? And like, so we can kind of use that network capital to connect dots for a company like that. That's a very different kind of support than the support we're doing for a concept or MVP stage founder, where they're literally going through our curricular offerings and potentially through our accelerators to get them to the point where they're ready to scale in Baltimore. And so we have literally a chart that lays out every stage of company and our offerings that sort of relate to that stage so that people can sort of find where they intersect with us, how we can help them meet their needs. But a lot of it is, it's our mobilization power, not just our direct service provision. What is the criteria for people that want to be part of Upsurge? I know you've talked about Equitech. What in particular are you looking for in terms of companies that you bring into your cohort? So we don't treat them like cohorts typically. Um, now we do have a couple of accelerators that are specifically cohort based. Um, but I would say that what we look for, if we're gonna advocate on behalf of a founder, which maybe is getting at what you're asking, um, you know, founders have got to view that as a mutually accountable relationship, meaning that you know, counters have got to be frank with us about their, um, you know, their progress and their challenges. You know, you're a founder yourself. I've been a founder. You know, it's very tempting to only want to tell people your good news. But if you're asking someone to be your advocate with, with people where there's a certain amount of currency, essentially, that you're drawing on to get them to work on your behalf, then you've got to be really clear to say to people, look, here are my 
you know, the, the five milestones I've hit this year, but here are the four things that could potentially knock me off track. And that's what I'm trying to work on. Right. And, and so that, that willingness to be transparent and accountable for like the work you have to do on your side as a founder is really important. I mean, we have situations like this less and less frequently, but we had more of this in the beginning where essentially we were new and we were trying to do everything for everyone all the time, as many startups do. We were a startup ourselves. And what we found was that when you don't create a sense of accountability, we can make a really solid intro for a founder. They get busy and they don't follow through. Well, now I've essentially wasted an intro because that founder doesn't follow through. That also tells me something about that founder. Like I'll think the next time about whether or not I want to introduce that person. So we've built in a little bit more of that accountability up front to say like, look, our goal is to get you to the right people that can help you scale your business. But before we're willing to do that, you have to do these few things that show us that you're ready. I love that. Bing, you have to be Baltimore based, I assume, as a company. Um. So Baltimore based, or um, we do work with some Baltimore connected founders. So either companies that were born here, companies that have um, a significant, we call significant presence. Mm -hmm. So they may be headquartered in somebody else, or they were maybe a company that started here and then they move for some reason, but they still have a significant Baltimore presence. We'll work with both of those kinds of companies. But there's one other thing I haven't said that I think may get to... Um, one thing that would be interesting to you and perhaps to your listeners, you know, what viewers, we want to be and will be the first Equitech city in the country, but our goal is not to be the last. And so we do a lot of what we're doing with an eye toward codifying our learning and looking, and we've been in this conversation with some national partners about building a national Equitech Alliance so that we're increasingly sort of sharing both our learning, but also the best learning that's happening around the country in an alliance that lets more cities try to think about a tech economy as inherently benefiting by diversity and, and taking out that lens that like supporting diverse entrepreneurs is somehow do good work as opposed to like inherently a game-changing economic opportunity. And so there's a lot of that work that we're doing as well in terms of thought leadership and advocacy around the country that we think is really important. I love that. That is a topic that is very important to me, very important to our company. We work with lots of our clients around that. I love the way you frame that. Diversity is not do good work. Diversity and diverse hiring is a business imperative that makes your business better. And yep. then the, the faster we understand that and make that ubiquitous across as many people in an organization as possible, the better thing uh, from an overall equality perspective. So I love that. All right. What's the well, thing? Can I throw us? Can I, before we go to the next, can I throw yeah. one stat at you? Do it, please. So, so in, in the entrepreneurial world in the country, right, we measure a lot of um, the progress of the entrepreneurial world by venture investment into companies. It's a proxy, right, for how we're doing as, as an innovation economy as a country. So, Founders whose backgrounds represent 70% of the US population. So women, black, brown, LGBT, you know, disabled founders represent 70% of the US population. 
that body of founders gets under 4% of all capital for growth in the country. That's insane. So, but when, but, but if you flip that negative statistic around, what that says is that there is a giant body of game-changing founders who, let's I say, get that. let's say you don't go from four to 70 to parity, but let's say you go from four to 20. Think about the ingenuity that's being unlocked in our country, like the next wave of economic opportunity. And some people put the number at something like Morgan Stanley put out or JP Morgan put out a report called the trillion dollar, the $3 trillion opportunity report. Like that's just one codification of what would happen if we could unleash diverse entrepreneurs with some level of the capital infrastructure that allows, you know, this amazing group of, of you know, innovators to, to grow and, and thrive. So I just like to give people that stat because I think sometimes we, we can get like lost in the negative side. Oh, they're only getting this. But the flip of it is we as a country aren't tapping this unbelievable body of entrepreneurs. And like, if we want to grow as a community, as a country and a society, like we need more ingenuity. We need more people with more experiences contributing to the future of our country. And we should all be thinking about how we tap that. I'm going to repeat the statistic. So women, people of color, LBGTQ, disabled veterans make up 70% of the American population. That's right. And yet of all founders that get funding, they're 4%. That's right. Wow. Astonishing. I love that. I'm going to use that. I appreciate that. That is a great statistic. And I'm like you, I look at, yeah, that needs to be better. There is no question about it, but man, what upside is there? So I appreciate that. I love that. We are a hiring podcast. I want to talk to you. I want to ask you some questions on this, but I want yep. to frame it through the lens of looking at founders because this isn't a topic that fascinates me. And I'd love to know what people like you are looking for when you talk to founders. So let's start here. What are kind of the key attributes that when you're talking to a founder, right, behavioral or what have you, that you're looking for that tells you this person's going to be a standout, this person's going to be a success? What, what comes to mind when I say that? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and obviously, there's a little there's a little bit of science and a lot of art in identifying good founders, but there are some characteristics that that over time, um, you know, I've zeroed in on is the things I find are most important. I mean, obviously, fundamentally, they have to have um, an idea that creates a product that somebody wants. And I think sometimes we forget that that is like the most fundamental thing. Like you can come up with the smartest thing in the world, but if on the other side, nobody wants it, if none of the moms had wanted my, my services for their kids running around the gym, it wouldn't matter if that was a good idea because you've got to have people on both sides of that. And the willingness to be critical with yourself and like quickly say, well, I thought it was a great idea, but nobody wants it. Okay, I was wrong. Let's pivot. That to me is, that's like number one. So it's the two sides of that. It's the great idea that somebody wants and the, and the, the sort of the ability to be self-reflective enough. If you, if you get out there and you put it out there and people don't want it like you thought, are you missing something? Did you not do enough discovery? Like, what is it, right? So, so that, 
that combination, great idea, great self-reflection. I think the second thing that is critically important is you've got to just be a walk through walls person. Like there's just no, you don't have to be the smartest person. You don't have to be the person with the best networks, but if you will walk through walls to get something done for the thing you believe in, if you'll, you know, I look, I have to say, like, I look at how many ways somebody tries to reach me the first time. Do they try me on LinkedIn? Do they, I get, sometimes you get those emails and it'll try my name like four different ways in an email because <laughs> they're just trying to figure out what form my email is in to get to you, right? Sure. Do they try to come through our website with a, with a um, contact form? Like that tells me something like this person is like, okay, I'm going to try this way and I'm going to try that way and I'm going to try this way. Like I look for that willingness to sort of like walk through walls, keep trying a different way to get it done. Um, Jamie, I, I got to tell up. you, I love that, but you just emboldened like the hundred or so salespeople that reach out to me every day. <laughs> now they're going to say, I just got to keep trying more angles. I'm eventually going to get them. So go ahead. I'm kidding. But, but honestly, you are going to be surprised at how few people actually do that. Yep. You're right. Right. Um, so then the third thing that I look for is, um, is resilience. And I would say I use a different term often. I wrote a little LinkedIn post about this, about amnesia. You know, I think that the best founders, they get knocked down all the time. Found this, this just happens. If you start a company, you're going to get not just no's, you're going to get your crazies. You're going to get what the heck are you doing? You're going to get your grandmother saying, go get a real job. Like you're, you know, you're going to get all kinds of difficult feedback. And in some ways, I think if you're somebody that internalizes all of that and gets a knot in your stomach and can't keep going, that's a tough personality for a founder. And so the ability to like hear it, say, I hear you, but I believe, you know, you put it aside, or maybe if you can take the lesson from the thing that they said, like there's some kernel of truth probably in there that you got to like say, okay, what, what learning can I take from this, but I'm going to keep going. So that's one of those things that I think is really important. And I would say that the last thing is like good judgment about people, because if, if somebody can't hire well, can't, I mean, so this goes right into what you do. Like if somebody can't figure out who they sync well with and how to build a team and that's not always apparent really early on, but by the third or fourth employee, you start to know, like, is this a group that's simpatico? Do they get along? Do they feel aligned? Um, do they have enough of a complementary base of, of experiences and perspectives that you can move faster? I mean, those are all things. There's a million other things, but th those are probably the ones I think about the most. Yeah, I love that. So I'm going to go back to the resilience one that you brought up. And I've said a lot that there's plenty of people who become entrepreneurs who have the mind for it, meaning they have an idea, right? They have the heart for it. They have the desire. They really want it bad. But where a lot of people get knocked out is they don't have the stomach for it. And you're right, because you're going to be any founder of any level of success is going to run yeah. into so many failures. And if you start to beat yourself up or you start to feel like you have imposter syndrome, you just got to stay in the fight a lot of the time. And I love what you said about amnesia. They talk about great shooters have the same thing. They'll go 0 for 10 from three point land and then they'll take that 11 shot just mm -hmm. as quick. And that is a quality of people that end up having the greatest success. Sometimes it's just about, like I said, staying in that fight. I love that. Um, 
What about a memorable interview, bad or good, with a founder, um, whether it be for Upsurge or whether it be anybody else you've met in any walk of life that stands out to you? Any kind of memories that that that, that when I bring that up come to mind? So, you know, it's interesting. Um, sometimes I, I think less. I've, I've certainly had memorable interviews, but I think more about like people that have told me something in the in the um, the outreach process that has made them break through for me, right? Mm. And I think that sometimes people underestimate the value of saying, you know, I'm coming to you with a unique perspective. You know, I spent four years in the military and while that might not be obvious, this is why I think that's relevant to your work and I really hope you'll interview me. Or I, I'm from a family of, I had somebody tell me this once, I'm from a family of 11 kids. I'm the 10th of 11 kids. And, you know, I share that because, you know, I think that's given me a unique lens on the world. And like, and that was like something that like, I interviewed that person, the rest of their resume might not have gotten me to interview them. But I think that sometimes people feel like, I don't want them to be inauthentic. But if you have something that, you feel is sort of an anchor of who you are that can just get somebody to, to like remember your email five minutes later, right? I think that that is one of those things I think about a lot is like, how do you break through people like me, people like you, we are waiting through emails, Slack, you know, our social channels. Like we have a million ways that people can communicate with us and you could have the smartest, best qualified person, but if I can't remember that they wrote to me five minutes later, you know, it's just hard, even with the best intentions to, to sort of make sure they get the chance they deserve. So I think a little bit almost like about the step before, like how does that person break through and get in front of me so I get the chance to hear how great they are? Well, I think it's another great quality in, 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 in great entrepreneurs is your ability to tell your story. What makes you different? What makes you the yeah. person I want to buy from? What makes you the person that casts a vision that I want to come work for? I think that's a really important thing. And that's what that person's doing when they're the 10th of 11 kids or they have something that's unique to them that gives them a different point of view that makes you want to, I want to hear more. I want to listen more. So I love that. Do you have a favorite question that you ask in any of these sessions that, that you're trying to get to the nitty gritty about what this founder is about or what's important to them? Well, <laughs> the thing I will typically do when I start an interview um, is I almost always start by saying, tell me why you're here. I just want to get them talking. I want to see what they say when it's not, tell me about your last job. Like, I just want an, I like an, a really big, broad, open-ended question. And I just love to see where people go with that. And I tend to think of my interviews as like this to this. So I want them to tell me something big and broad and open-ended. And then we increasingly get into like the, what I think of as, as sort of the, the, sort of the key success factors for the job and for the role. But I want somebody to freeform, you know, and get me interested, show me who they are, tell me, like engage me in, because, you know, you know this, in entrepreneurial work, like you're in such a small environment that, and I'm not saying the person has to be Mr. Personality. I'm quite an introvert actually, but they've, they've got to be able to like be in the flow of the culture and the organization. And so I start, I always start with like, tell me why you're here. 
Yeah, I love that. I, I, let's let's give some advice to people who might be sitting on the other end of that question. What are some <laughs> things you don't like to hear? What are some things that might kind of raise red flags for you if maybe they talk too much or maybe if they're lack detail and ambiguity? What might be things that might be red flags for you on and answering that question? Well, I mean, one red flag is if they start by saying, my boss is a jerk and I want a new job. <laughs> things yep. like that. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't mind if somebody's having a challenging experience in the job they're in, but I want to know that, you know, you're seeking an opportunity that lets you fully explore your talents and capabilities. And you haven't necessarily felt like you've had free reign to, to be your best self in your job or whatever. So I think starting from a negative is, is for me, a red flag. Um, I think in that, what you know why are you here um they certainly should be saying some things about my organization they should show me that they have read about upsurge about me that they know something about entrepreneurship they have questions about baltimore like they should be able to start you know connecting to what i care about in that first five minutes um and then I would say that the other thing that, you know, is a complicating factor, not necessarily something that would prevent me from carrying a conversation forward is, um, you know, if, if the person is so um, ill-prepared that they're almost like too nervous to handle an open-ended question, so I think the preparation has two elements of it. One, I just want to know that they're, they've done the work to be ready. But the other element of preparation is it should give you the confidence that you can fill, you know, you, you can fill some airtime if you need to, because you have questions ready or whatever. Like it's a, I, I see that whole thing as a very internet interconnected part of good interviewing. Um, I don't know. What are you like? What is what would be a big negative for you in an open-ended question? Because you do this for a living. Yeah, I, yeah. I'd love to take away a new a new tactic. Yeah, I love it. Um, so some things that stand out to me that might be potential red flags: um, a lack of self-awareness. So that a lot of that can be rambling and talking and getting off point and just you know sometimes that can be nervousness. So you want to keep an open mind. But I also think. If you're not keeping beats in your head about how long you're talking, if you're not aware of how is this person receiving this, am I making the point? If you're not having some level of internal narrative yeah. around that, I think that can be a red flag. Uh, certainly somebody that is either, and this goes to one of two extremes, I think to your point, victim, right? And 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 all this has happened to me and um, you know, complaining and, and, and bringing kind of a negative mindset and attitude. And we all go through that from time to time. But if you're doing that in an interview, when you're trying to be your best self, yeah, that exactly, probably yeah. is a default for you and something that <laughs> yep. will definitely stand out to me as a concern. Um, and then listen, if you've built a company of any type of size or stature, um, and this is the opposite end of that spectrum, if you're just talking about me and what I've done and how great I am, and, and, and we're not hearing about the team and we're not hearing about luck, we're not hearing about That's the opportunities you've been given. That concerns that, me too. So that's a, that's that. a really important. I don't know how I missed that one because that drives me crazy too. Hey, we're here together. We're coming to the best answers together. So no worries. Yeah. Yep. All right. Last hiring question. So when it comes to technology, right? Do you have anything in front of you when you're interviewing? Are you using a, a pen and paper? Are you keeping it in your head? Do you do you keep, how do you manage candidates? Is it Excel? Yeah. So more recently, um, 
I have, I use this, honestly, this AI kind of Zoom thing when I Zoom with people, because I mostly Zoom. If I'm not, I take notes, um, but, and it, it records. What does it do? It does like voice transcription and it kind of documents the content. Well, even more than that, it does voice transcription, but it also, um, um, sorry, it also does, um, it has like a, a some boxes on the screen. And so if you're talking and I wanna make sure I remember this part, like this, this five minutes of what you said, cause it's really important to something else. I can literally hit this button and say highlight and it'll go back to when your last pause was and it'll capture in like a, in a, in a note essentially what you said. And so not only does it capture it and highlights it on the, on the, on the full transcription, it also, um, gives me like the AI synthesis of it. <laughs> so it would take your last five minutes of something that you said, and it's gonna give me the three sentences that were like what they took away from what you said. It also, if, if anything sounds like a to-do, it says, this sounded like a to-do. Is, do you wanna follow up? And you can say, yes, yes, yes. And then it gives you like your five to-dos in a list. So this is Zoom AI? It's a, um, so I use one called Fathom. Yep. And um, and then there's a so Fireflies is another one that I doesn't have, for me have quite the same value on the functionality. There are a bunch of them right now, but Fathom is the one that I use. I use Fathom too. I did not know about the being able to highlight and come back to that. I oh yeah, really yeah. <laughs> not that I'm writing it down for like product feature ideas or anything <laughs> like that. Um, check, check the um you just check to make sure that you've got the most recent version. Okay. Love it. Good stuff. Um, all right, let's, let's dive in. And, and I want to ask you a couple more questions before we wrap this up. So first thing I want to ask you is we talked about the LinkedIn post and amnesia. I think you did a great job of explaining that. I, I really want to understand maybe something that's going on in your organization right now. I mean, it sounds like everything that's going on is super exciting, but like, what's something that's getting you out of bed in the morning? Is there a specific company? Is there a specific initiative? Is there anything that Upsurge is doing right now? That's really um, getting you going? You know, this is the greatest job I've ever had. So I have to say, like, I get going really um, naturally because I just think fundamentally the opportunity to build something that's not only great for the founders that we work with, great for the city that I love, but also potentially a model that can be riffed on, evolved, adopted by places around the country. Um, how could you not get up out of the bed for that? Um, you know, at a very, like at, at a much more micro level, we have some of the most, I think, inspiring game-changing founders, particularly black founders in Baltimore, women founders in Baltimore um, of like any place and, you know, part of it is just the natural demographics of our city have lent themselves to, um, you know, just a generally larger population of diverse founders. Um, but also because we are a city where many of the technologies that are being um, being innovated are science-based, we also have some of the most interesting, you know, women and black science founders. And so it's just, we, I mean, I am just wowed by the people I get to work with every day. And um, 
And if we could just match the resources that their white male counterparts were getting to fuel their work, kind of back to one of the things we were talking about earlier, you know, we, for example, we have an amazing um, black woman founder who runs a company called Sanavi Labs, S-O-N-A-V-I. And she has an FDA cleared um, cardiopulmonary device. It's actually an AI powered device that for people with chronic um, cardiopulmonary conditions like asthma and COPD, where the device, you know, you can place it on your chest at home, you could, I could, you know, and it not only you know, learns your rhythms, knows, you know, is connected to your doctor, is being tracked in an app so that your family members could know if you have something going on. But it has the intelligence to get smarter and smarter about you. And, you know, as you change age, take new medicines, whatever. And, you know, Sanavi is, um, you know, it, it's a groundbreaking company with all these patented technologies. They win every pitch competition because, you know, she is just such a compelling founder. Um, but their nearest competitor is a company led by some guys in Silicon Valley. And, um, you know, there's always arguments mar on the margin. Is this technology slightly better? Is that technology, you know, Sanavi's backers believe Sanavi's better. The, this other company's backers believe it's better. But the reality is their company's raised $65 million at a huge valuation. She's raised five. And to take her company to the next level, you know, the slog of raising money means she's got to be super creative and she's constantly getting new NSF money, getting winning pitch, like doing the things she's got to do. Because as soon as a black woman founder comes in the room, you know, so many traditional funders just, they will, they, they can't even see their blind spot, but they kind of like, they ask an entirely different series of questions. They, so anyway, I say all that to say, I work with these amazing founders and I think I sit in this interesting position where I can sometimes be a bridge between communities that are historically underestimated and people that are in the sort of the traditional funding structures and work to try to close some of those gaps. And even with me in the middle, it's still incredibly hard. Um, but that that is the work that you know, at a micro level, you kind of, you get, you hang up from a call with one of these founders and you just say, I'm betting on the future of the country, my kids' futures, my future grandchildren, because people like this are doing what they're doing. Love that. All right. We're going to wrap up here. If you had to give our listeners one bit of career advice that you didn't have early on in your career, but you do now, what would it be? probably to take my own advice about the amnesia, particularly in my corporate career. Um, you know, I think that, that you probably have listeners who are in corporations rather than being entrepreneurs. And um, I think in my corporate career, I had a harder time, particularly when I was younger, you know, just pulling the lessons out of negative or constructive feedback and letting it go. And I would kind of hate that person forever. <laughs> I mean, I eventually got over it, but like, I definitely had people, I held grudges for a long time when they would give me negative feedback when I was young. And um, 
I think now I really can like process, like I can have a pretty tough conversation with somebody and just hear it and move on and kind of hear where they're coming from. And so I think that that, I think it probably applies in that arena too. Love that. Amnesia. So I want to say this, if people want to find out more about Upsurge, where would you send them? You just go to upsurgebaltimore.com. Okay. I'm going to be upfront. I um, have been to Baltimore. I've been to the aquarium, I've been to Camden Yards, but honestly, as somebody who grew up on the West coast of the United States and lives in South Florida now, when I thought about Baltimore, the, the three things that came to mind were crab cakes, the Ravens and the wire. And I yeah. hope after people listen to this, they think about Equitech, they think about technology, they think about the new technology city 3.0. I think you're doing such amazing things. I'm so glad you came on. I'm so grateful that we got to learn a little bit more about it. And I hope people dig in and do more research and find out more about what you're doing, because I think it's amazing, amazing work. Thank you so much for coming on, Jamie. Well, it's my pleasure. And thanks for the groundbreaking work that you're doing, because you're transforming the way companies hire and build their cultures. And like, there's honestly nothing more important than that. So thanks so much. I'm so flattered you said that. Thank you so much. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. Bye. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.